Hello, this is Ida Josefina, and you're listening to The Sane Podcast. Today, I'll be speaking with Albie Early, London-based digital communications specialist and campaign manager. Albie's career has been largely centered around the madness of Brexit that I somewhat unfortunately refer to as breakfast in this recording. He worked as a digital manager overseeing fact-checking of ads in the Remain campaign before the referendum and led multiple initiatives within the People's Vote campaign post-Brexit. Albie has also worked in Parliament for two MPs, including the Shadow Digital Minister, and has run several elections at local, mayoral, and national levels. In this episode, we'll be talking about what actually happened in the EU referendum, how the campaigns were organized and run, the role of social media in all of it, and how technology has changed campaign tactics and uncovered deep structural realities. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. So let's get to it. Here's Albie Early. Thank you so much for being the first guest on the same podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Okay, amazing. Let's just start out with um, maybe hearing a little bit about your background. How did you first get interested and then eventually involved in politics? Um, so I am a sort of uh, mid-millennial child of the early 90s. I was born in the northeast of England in um, one of those industrial towns that had had a very hard time in the 80s. And I was born into a political family um, uh, sort of on the left, uh, sort of involved in local government and trade union activity. And um, yeah, it was kind of how I was brought up. And I ran my, my first petition when I was age 10 to allow my mum to I grow my hair long and I got most of my <laughs> year group and, and more to sign it. Um, and then when I was at school, I was, I was involved in, uh, you know, political clubs and magazine writing and, and various things. And at university, I jumped into the sort of the student politics um, uh, sort of madness of horror. Um, and, and I've yeah, been there. Yeah, yeah. And then, and, then, and then, you know, after university, sort of went into it professionally. Okay, nice. What was the transition into into getting involved professionally? What was the first thing that you worked on? Or, um, I mean, the first thing I worked on was um, uh, working on behalf of trade unions who were trying to improve the digital um, presence of their candidates that were seeking election um, around the country. So we're talking about Labour Party candidates in, in the UK context, but the, the trade unions have a very strong yeah. link. And so I was working with a small team of people that was a little company started by, you know, men in their, you know, 20s. Um, and we were just trying to sort of, you know, build websites and, you know, do emails better. And, and you know, you know, how do you do cam um, email campaigning? And then I, I did a, a master's degree um, after spending a, a year or so doing that. And then after my master's, I, I looked around and I thought, what's the next big potential kind of political battle on the horizon? And it was sort of 2014. And, um, and I thought, well, I've got to try and get myself into position for whether this Brexit thing's going to happen, because it was sort of in the water, had been brewing for a long time, right. and I kind, of, I kind of made the judgment, that's where I wanted to be, you know, where the big thing was going to be. Yeah, <laughs> turned out very big, didn't it? So mm. the majority of your career has been focused around Brexit since then, no? And, mm. and so what exactly happened with the EU referendum? How did the issue, you know, first get brought up to a national vote, and, and what happened there? Um, well, I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a really, really kind of long story, but, but, but to be as, as concise as I possibly can, um, you know, Britain made its decision um, to enter the common market, which then became um, the European Union in the, in the early 70s, and it won a very decisive referendum victory, and it was the first national plebiscite, the first national referendum 
that had ever happened in the UK, which doesn't have a tradition of using referendum. In fact, it's historically right. very much frowned upon the referendum. It's seen it as a, a tool of dictators and, and uh, you know, European despots of various um, shades. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was a resounding victory. It was sort of a 75, 25 or, or thereabouts. And um, the, the kind of the rump element um, of that cause, you know, the people that, that lost, um, you know, they, they carried on sort of diligently kind of um, beating this kind of drum kind of on the outside of politics, um, political mainstream. And as, um, you know, the 80s, the 90s progressed and, you know, this sort of small kind of quite, I don't know, broadly reactionary kind of movement um, on the right of British politics, although there was a left component of it too, um, just began increasingly able to kind of leverage political pressure against the Conservative Party um, to the point at which they became a bit of a kind of broker in terms of the Conservatives having a viable governing coalition. And so they were offered uh, essentially as a condition of their support um, uh, with David Cameron's attempt to become elected, the, the, the promise of a, a national referendum. And then, of course, we also had this uh, Scottish independence referendum, which Cameron also, David Cameron, the British Prime Minister, also authorised and, and won relatively convincingly and I think sort of marched um, foolishly into the next big, um, the next big challenge and, uh, and miscalculated that one. Um, but, but by the time it came to it, we were in this kind of situation where, you know, the two main parties, the duopoly of British politics, had at their margins Eurosceptics from the left and the right um, but there was a general cohesion and consensus around the question of Britain's membership in the European Union, although there had been, a, a, you know, a, a, the approach to the British mainstream to Europe had always been a bit cynical and, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here, um, not always sort of with the best intentions, but people were often a bit... Um, uh, difficult for me to say really what I mean by this, but um, people were just very expedient in this, that they didn't take it very seriously. They hadn't spent a long time yeah. developing um, people's understanding of the merits and, and the benefits and, and the reasons for people's membership. And so this kind of, what we thought, what a lot of people thought was going to be a relatively um, close run, a relatively um, easy run thing became um, a bit of a strange nightmare to be honest. Yeah, so what was your specific involvement at this stage of the campaign before the referendum actually happened and then afterwards in the people's vote? Um, so in the very earliest stage, um, because the UK doesn't have a tradition of referendum, uh, fighting referendums um, at the national level, uh, there was this sort of strange kind of um, ecosystem that was emerging around Westminster of various different campaign organisations that were getting bits of funding from here and there to sort of see whether you could pull together um, you know, something that would be kind of a, a referendum fighting team. And I, I got pulled into one of those as a kind of um, a junior staffer. Um, right. And uh, was able to sort of, had a, you know, I wasn't uh, in the driving seat at all, but had a, a pretty close kind of ringside view of, um, you know, who the major players were and, and what was at stake. Um, and um, I didn't actually end up going into the main campaign. There was various different, um, I don't know, power struggles and battles and um, strange sort of, you know, backstabbings and knifings because uh, basically people, <laughs> people understood that, um, broadly understood that this was an easy win thing. And so everyone was trying to get their people into the right positions so they could just claim the victory when it came. And, and very few people were thinking about how that victory might actually be won and they were underestimating their opposition quite badly. Um, and then during the referendum, I ended up in um, 
a sort of uh, independent fact checker run by um, a whole load of quite senior sort of um, uh, British journalists who sort of jumped from or sort of semi-retired from big publications like Reuters or the FT or Bloomberg or something. And uh, we tried yeah. to run a kind of a, like a fact-checking operation um, to look at what claims were coming out of the um, um, uh, the lead campaign and the various outliers. Um, and so I, I certainly got to see um, what their arguments were and, and what their campaign looked like and what they were trying to do. But unfortunately, I, I increasingly realised that we were quite powerless to uh, to stop the sort of uh, the juggernaut that was coming. Um, and yeah. our, our focus on on um, what you know, what, what we think relatively sincerely thought were you know clear and honest and politics with a, a degree of integrity was just very back-footed and we, we were we were right. checking facts and and uh, you know reporting people to press commissioners for for misleading information or or watchdogs and you know it, it, it doesn't work like that yeah and so this was all actually before you know any of the scandals of Cambridge Analytica or these yeah. type of things came out where it became very much public knowledge that the internet is pretty fucked and full of mm. information that isn't necessarily uh, well-intentioned um, and, and, and the public in, in general knew about this. So can you, can you talk a little bit about how these campaigns are you know, organized and run and how do campaign, campaigns methodize getting voters to, to support them? Um, or, or did at that point? Yeah. So, 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 yeah. I mean, it, 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 it was the case that there was a bit of an old guard, and I think there still is an old guard who kind of run these campaigns. I think the political ecosystem in the UK, in terms of recruitment and hiring, all that kind of stuff, is is very poor. I think it it, it needs to change, um, but I'm not sure how. Um, but but roughly, um, I mean, I started to notice from my position in that kind of fact-checking organisation, um, you know, the emergence of. You know, I could see adverts coming through that we had no idea like where they were coming from and who was doing them and stuff. But you know, going yeah. to my kind of higher ups and being like, you know, are we really sure that we quite understand the terrain that we're fighting on here? And then just not really getting it. Um, but in, in terms of how these things are structured, um, my feeling was is that, it, and to this day, I, I feel it's quite unsophisticated. So so you you roughly start with your electoral register. Um, and your historical voting canvassing data, which of course in a referendum, we didn't have any because they were all, the political parties had this canvassing data, but no one was going to share their canvassing data with rival political parties to build a right. common campaign. I mean, that was just never gonna happen. So we didn't really have any historical um, uh, canvassing data that activists had collected over years, you know, voting intentions, that kind of stuff. Um, and so um, as, as far as I could tell from where I was, was that you, know, you take the electoral register, you overlay it with um, information from credit rating agencies and other data brokers, and then you, um, you break it down into cohorts of groups of people that you think more or less represent um, demographics that have a likelihood of voting for you. Um, and you apply some predictive analysis and you undertake some um, polling on issues and you undertake uh, focus grouping to find your um, your buzzwords or your your issues or your talking points, and um, and then you simply farm out to your communications and to your um, your ground organisers uh, pretty limited information really on where they should be where they should be focusing their efforts and what they should be who they should be talking to and how they should be talking to them, um, and it was that's kind of how politics is done in the UK and. Um, uh, I hope I've given a reasonable, reasonably clear overview of how that 
how that works or the best the way to yeah. understand how it works. Um, so it's basically like a like a marketing funnel, like lead generation. Yeah. In the way that tech companies um, do it, it's it's not too dissimilar to that. Yeah, but it, it but it, it, it it's unsophisticated in the sense that you know elections are hugely complex one-off events in which you do not have any record of point of sale. You cannot directly follow people from from the beginning of their interaction with your political campaign to the ballot box. Um, yeah. And because of this, um, it's it's just very hard to know what to do. And uh, people, uh, you know, choose campaign companies for, for political reasons or, or because, they, you know, people they've got inside that organization, <laughs> you know, are, are helping make that contract happen. I mean, it's very obvious that was happening quite a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah of um, course. <clears throat> um, but yeah, no, it, it always struck me as I, I kind of understood the framework in which we were under. Um, but I was also very skeptical of our ability to really understand how to drive and motivate and, and change minds. And I think for that reason, um, digital campaigning sort of has always been a little bit um, under-resourced in the UK. We have less money in politics generally because of the way that we, we structure and, and, and legally restrict the use of money in politics. Um, yeah. But yeah. And, and how did the Leave EU campaign do it? How did they get... Because from my understanding, they were able to get a huge amount of voters that had traditionally, for example, voted Labour and not been particularly in any way against the mm. EU. Uh, how did they get them to vote for breakfast, to leave uh, for Brexit, for, <laughs> for bre to leave the, for yeah. breakfast, <laughs> uh, to, for Brexit and to actually leave the EU? How does that journey actually look like, especially in terms of, of um, social media and the kind of ads they see on their Facebook feeds? Um, oh, first of all, don't blame yourself for breakfast. I had to hear people say that over and over and over again. Um, people get that. <laughs> it was quite always. It was one of the biggest sort of jokes of the period. People saying breakfast instead of breakfast. Um, <laughs> I don't know how that got in my mind. I don't think I've ever it's said just, that. It's, 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 one of those, it's one of those verbal tics. You'd, you'd hear it from newsreaders. You'd hear it from your colleagues. Um, That's uh, so funny. Um, yeah. So I, I, you know, first of all. There have been various inquiries, uh, you know, watchdogs have gone after, uh, you know, the campaigns that were involved. There's been an awful lot of attempt to um, occlude, hide, disguise or over exaggerate, I think, as a form of um, another form of uh, another attempt to bewilder people. Um, but I mean, I think I don't really understand, um, I, you know, my background is in you know, learning how to do these campaigns quite practically. I don't have a theoretical training in psychology or, 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 even, or even technical marketing. I'm, I'm just sort of someone that's had to kind of learn on the job and learn from others and, you know, attend conferences and, and see what I can pick up. Um, but, but I think what the Leave campaign was able to do, and, and you know, Dominic Cummings, the, the, the sort of, you know, the, the architect, the evil genius behind it, has often described it and I think continues to describe it as uh, a hack um, that was able to uh, strike in a way that the establishment was not expecting and change people's ability, change the way people thought about themselves as voters very rapidly. Um, I mean, I think I said earlier that the UK has a very powerful political duopoly traditionally. Um, 
and this is maintained by the way that the electoral system, which is in the UK, yeah. something called first past the post, which means that you know you only have to win a plurality of votes in a constituency to win the representative, win the right to represent that entire constituency, and so that means that you know regularly parties are winning on 33, 38, 42 percent of the vote, um, and because of that. Um, there was a lot of, that stabilizes the two-party system, but it breeds a lot of resentment kind of on the fringes. It creates this sense of, of hopelessness and, and, and uh, feeling that things can't change in, in lots of places, whether it's a very conservative constituency or very labor constituency. And in a lot of the constituencies and the areas which had been traditionally labor and had traditionally carried those voters with the labor party, that they did, they, they did in those areas it did result in there, there was actually this kind of, you know, quite sizable, measurable shift in sort of older Labour voters voting leave. And it, I think that one of the most important things to understand is that because referendums themselves are so unusual in the UK context, and because they provided yeah. this very, very simple binary, and they offered for the first time a way of having some kind of agency in a system which people had felt had marginalize them and whether they felt have marginalized them for good or bad reasons I mean a lot of people's motivations for voting Brexit were you know I think very politically you know dubious um, um, and I think all that the leave campaign had to do was show those people that the rules were different that they could land a blow that they could really mess things up for people and they basically did this by kind of just frying the traditional, the established mode of British politics by just, yeah, I mean, just doing basically quite grubby, quite nationalist, reactionary politics in a way which was um, outside of the normal kind of uh, uh, safety barriers that the kind of two-party duopoly and, and yeah. has had sort of provided. And I, and I don't know whether it had to be as sophisticated as... Um, its advocates, uh, the, the people behind the campaign made out. Um, I think it just had a new, it was able to reframe politics. It was able to propose people this kind of, this, 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 this agency that they never felt they had and was able to rile people up using communications channels which um, people in the establishment didn't understand, didn't grasp how to use, right. couldn't see what was going on. And yeah, they could just tell people this and that and whatever, and you know, and, and I, I would I would see on on you know we would get people because we were, I was working for that fact checker. People would send us ads, being like, "Hey, I've just seen this. Hey, I've just seen that. Isn't this ridiculous?" We'd find things that didn't have imprint, things that were untraceable, things that you know could have come from any source, and um, because you know yeah. the, the regulators were so behind in terms of what was what was possible in terms of digital marketing. But but in terms of my ability to evaluate it. I think you just have to listen to what, you know, again, Dominic Cummings, the great kind of evil architect said, wasn't it? You know, there was a Eurozone crisis, a kind of low growth stagnation political crisis. There was the migrant crisis that was really, really played on by the Leave campaign, this kind of fear of, you know, swarms of like, you know, Syrians or, or, or whatever the hell it was meant to be, North Africans fleeing from Libya. Um, and then also the fact that we'd had 10 years of domestic austerity in the UK, which had left a lot of these areas even further behind than they'd been after you know, yeah. this kind of big shift. And I, it was just- um, So there's yeah. there's just a, there's actually like several sort of different components to this. Uh, I think one, the one that you mentioned is really interesting that it was actually very structural because mm. of this lack of 
referendums in, mm. in British politics in general. Um, and that provides a sort of different, you know, psychological release for people to mm. feel like they're able to actually do something. Mm. Uh, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a really fascinating idea. And then the second um, one that you mentioned that I want to touch on a bit further is that of, you know, these untraceable advertisements and how, mm. just how unregulated that space was. Can you, uh, can you say what these advertisements look like? How, what, what were people seeing? Like if you're seeing an ad that eventually is trying to get you to vote for Brexit, what mm. does that, what, what did those ads look like and, and how did they sort of build up over time on an individual person's feed, for example? Um, so, I mean, uh, again, I mean, uh, you know, uh, you, you know I, I would love to be able to sort of have a TV remote and just flick through people's Facebook feeds. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, that would be fascinating for me just to kind of go through it and, and see what other worlds people inhabit. Um, you know, I, I don't know what, um, you know, what that looked like. Uh, I don't know whether we'll be able to ever know what that looked like. Um, but I did see some of the ads that were sent to us that people were receiving because, you know, these tools were, they are still a bit scattergun. You know, it does kind of seep out, you know. But, you know, they were, um, they, the, the, the Leave campaign was, uh, for example, they were using the colours of political parties that they had no right to use on, on their adverts, right? So that they were implying that this advert had the endorsement of a political party and when it didn't. Right. You know, um, you know, you would see the same ad and it would have the colours of the UK Independence Party, it would have the colours of the Conservative Party. Um, you know, they were trying to sort of, um, yeah, they were, they were obviously trying lots of different things to try and pull people in. Um, the, the, the national campaign, um, you know, they relied very heavily upon the Leave campaign was, was quite um, um, abrasive and, you know, definitely had elements that were quite bigoted and, and, and racialized in its campaigning. But they also relied very heavily on these outright organizations. Um, so for, for Vote Leave, there was uh, Leave.eu, which was like even more extreme <laughs> and crazy. And, yeah. there was, and, and, and there was lots of very strange kind of outrider things. So that they were able to, to have like a very presentable face and then have like a very kind of reactionary outrider kind of set of organizations. And I guess they were just finding their way, their way through um, to all the places they need to be, needed to be um, with the right kind of voices to be, to be heard. Um, but I mean, I, 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 there was something that I think you, you, know, you and I talked um, a bit before when, when we were um, um, just you know, talking about doing this podcast, which is about how, you know, having seen um, the way in which kind of far right groups radicalize um, people online is that they, they, they start by bringing people in with quite innocuous, um, um, quite innocuous uh, bits of advertising or, or social content involving, you know, in one instance I saw the... Um, you know, share if you remember the one pound note, which is a defunct denomination of paper currency in the UK that went out in the 80s and kind of has kind of yeah. quite romantic um, associations with a certain generation. And so, you know, like someone's aunt you'll see on Facebook will share, oh, I remember the one pound note, but it actually came from a group that's like a far right group. And then, then they like that page because they like remembering the one pound note. And then the next thing they see is um, animal cruelty. Um, and animal cruelty in this instance is conducted by someone from a, you know, maligned ethnic minority. And so, and then right. you're on a, you're on a pathway there and that is a marketing funnel and they're looking for a core audience and they're driving towards it. Um, and so I, 
like I said, the, the, this, the, what the lead campaign was doing was dark to us. We could only see little fragments of it. There wasn't this investigation that came afterwards. But I, I largely suspect that they were throwing their net wide and they were drawing people in, you know, it, it yeah. concentrically um, into, uh, a, you know, a, a more and more kind of certain and radicalized position. But I mean, but, yeah. but at the same time, it's very hard for me to evaluate exactly how much effect that had. It's very difficult to measure your, your, your return on investment when it comes to online digital and, and, and the ballot box, you know, because we can't track people. Yeah. Fortunately, fortunately, we can't. Yeah, I mean, it is just it's just sort of a dark hole, all of it. Yeah, it all starts with a one pound note. Yeah. So how do you perceive the role of, um, you know, I, I know you like of social media and all of this. I know you just mentioned that it's super difficult to measure. But do you think that social me media is the sort of, you know, foundational problem or is it just uncovering, you know, certain realities that maybe mm. were more hidden? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, beforehand. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm very much of the view that um, that offline inequalities, inequities, and injustices are reflected online, and that online isn't some kind of um, escape or some kind of equal terrain, isn't some sort of you know uh, some bold new frontier which people kind of arrive you know uh, as sort of new subjects. You know, I mean, I think you know, I think that's sort of untrue. I, I think that. Um, Social media networks have different um, sort of social logics embedded into them. Um, you know, yeah. Facebook has, you know, a focus upon like, you know, family and friends and local news communities and special interest groups. And, you know, Twitter's a sort of, you know, ragingly open, very, very kind of unequal. You know, there's the super power users at the top who make all the content and all the people with 100 followers who call everyone a dickhead or whatever. Um, you know, um, you know, specialized things like next door, like obviously just social networks for communities that people can complain about, you know, kids on their bikes or people smoking weed or whatever. And, you know, there is a way in which these technologies embed certain or assume or or contain within them certain kind of arrangements that social arrangements that tend to produce certain kind of outcomes. Um, you know, I, Twitter is a particularly sort of like, you know, high-paced kind of very angry place that's very good for sort of news dissemination and sort of ideas. And, and Facebook, I mean, I, you know, in terms of politics and campaigning, especially because of, you know, who actually votes in elections, which is predominantly older people. I mean, Facebook is still yeah. like this very, very valuable place politically. But it contains within yeah. it all sorts of little kind of walled gardens of, you know, communities and, and groups and, and, and news pages. And, and a lot of these exist in a... Um, in the um, um, sort of the retreat of a kind of traditional kind of media space, a traditional public realm um, has been replaced by these sort of small kind of wall gardens on Facebook and communities and stuff. And you know, you, yeah. in politics, you know, in the last couple of years, we've tried harder to map those communities, to be in them, to, to listen socially in them, and to see how ideas spread around them. And to be honest, the experiences have been quite frightening. Um, and um, the, in, in a lot of lot of lot of places where, where there's been a retreat of traditional um, traditional media and, and local media, you find these small communities are um, you know hotbeds of, of um, just like crazy misinformation and um, and and often prejudice and and stuff like that. And um, yeah, and yeah, so I can I, imagine I, it's it's sort of ironic the the idea that social media was supposed to be this huge act of decentralization mm. and in a way it's making everything more top heavy and giving potentially power to you know a smaller group of people to disseminate information yeah yeah yeah, yeah. definitely definitely i mean it's um 
Yeah, and, 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 and people, people, some people know how better, some people, some groups, some political groups seem to have a better grasp of how to organize and be effective in these spaces. And I think that, I think across all the different social media networks that, that, that I've, you know, had to be involved in, either, either privately or professionally, they still basically rely upon um, high arousal, emotional arousal, as the most effective strategy yeah. for, for communicating or being seen um, on these networks. And that in itself is probably, um, like, unhealthy. Um, so, yeah, I, mean, I, I do think that <laughs> all of these social media networks, their particular characteristics, the particular social forms that they tend to kind of promote or embody, are to some extent just like uh, epiphenomenal to kind of broader injustices that kind of sit below them in, in uh, you know, there isn't this real world in the online world, it's all the same world. Um, it, it's definitely important, but I, 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 I don't know, I don't know how important, I, I don't even know how to evaluate. Yeah. I mean, I would probably, I would maybe take a slightly different stance on that, just because mm. social media has made everyone in a way live in an individual, different digital reality. Um, because everyone sees a different Facebook feed or a different Twitter feed and the algorithms choose what to show you based off of that, you know, huge yeah. amount of information and they, they can, you know, learn about you. They know what you're interested in, what you're afraid of. All yeah. these, you know, Cambridge Analytica said that they potentially had thousands of different data points on every single American voter yeah. uh, before the, the Trump campaign. So... I, that, I think that's the scary thing, that in a way, it, they are kind of separated worlds in the sense that each individual, in a way, lives in a completely different digital reality, making public discourse, obviously, then more difficult if that happens, but like uh, partly in real life and then partly digitally. So what do you think about that? What do you think that should be done there? Do you have any ideas on systematic change between and in the relationship of political parties, campaigns, and the media? Um... So yeah, I mean, it's a it's a very it's a very difficult question. I mean, I I mean, I I, I attempted to uh, well, no, I did. I was accepted onto a PhD program to to look specifically at um, this kind of question of what was kind of termed as sort of digital civics, um, this idea yeah. of like you know how can we begin to use technologies and uh, you know other traditional methods and uh, to find ways to start to remedy what looked like very obvious problems that were kind of emerging in this kind of um i don't know this kind of online world that we created and I, I didn't do it in the end and, and part of the reason that i didn't do it in the end was that you know the, the more i looked at the kind of the active research and I, I admired what people were doing and, and the ambition was that i just felt that there wasn't enough money to, to do this properly and um, there wasn't enough money to really uh, try and invest in developing using technologies that might begin to sort of you know assault these problems that were, were clearly beginning to emerge in terms of you know fragmenting of you know the public realm or you know the sort of disintegrating of kind of you know common relatively common narrative around you know important things you know we're, we're living through you know you know vaccine denial stuff and yeah. rampant climate denial and conspiratorial theories about you know QAnon and these are all clearly things which are which are aided and assisted by the particular characteristics and, and social relations embedded in, 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 in sort of new media technologies and I wanted right. to go and try and work on where you could start to to kind of create these kind of new kind of like you know intermediating kind of attempts to kind of 
create new spaces, slow things down, improve people's understandings. And you know, I, I very nearly went to do that, but I just looked at the, you know, what was being done. I just thought, well, no one's gonna give you any money to do anything that would really matter. And you're just doing you know, really nice and interesting little, little experiments trying to improve how planning law works or involve people in understanding how traffic systems work in cities so you can push for better one-way systems. But it just, it just wasn't, clearly just wasn't enough money. Yeah, that's that's really interesting that you say that because I mean that th that is the issue that in this sort of competition for growth and engagement, tech companies have basically created a um, a race for human attention and 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 the business models that dominate the space create more companies that do things more in this type of of way and and that's sort of the problem that we're trying to solve with Zane and the, this this podcast mm. and the other kind of work we do is is really try to think about how you could build more humane technology and create alternatives that can that can you know really have a more a less fragmented slowed down decluttered um, and factually based information networks but it's not particularly an easy task and I think it says a lot um, that you feel that, or, or probably not, not even that you feel that, but that, that there just isn't enough money in this research and enough opportunities to actually build al alternatives. So, um, yeah, I just mean, to, as a, yeah, go ahead. No, I mean, I, I was just, you know, I was in this situation where I think I was 26, 27, and it was, you know, go and do this, this, this funded PhD and, and essentially take a big pay cut and then, and then not know afterwards whether I could you know, actually live reasonably, reasonably well, but it was a really interesting field to yep. work in. And so I had to continue Absolutely. doing, doing, I mean, I, I, I like the work I do, you know, I think it's important that I'm, I, and I've always liked working in political stuff, but you know, that was kind of, you know, it just wasn't there, you know, yeah. the, the security. Wasn't I, there. I really hope it will be in the future. <laughs> and I'm actually quite confident that, that it will. I think people are innovating a lot within this arena now. And I, and I really hope that if we visit, revisit this conversation in a few years, um, the, the optimism will be higher from both your side and mine. But um, I think that's all the time we had for today. Thank you so much, uh, Albie. I really appreciate you being our first guest on this podcast. And best of luck to you with, with your ambitions.